Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. So, Robbie, we've just released our fifth and sixth installment of our Media Roots Psychedelic series, Ongoing. I think we still maybe have one or perhaps two left in the chamber. We're going to bust those out ASAP. But the last two episodes were about the Shulgans, Anne and Sasha Shulgan. Um, after we released those episodes, Robbie, we just got the tragic news that Anne Shulgan had passed away at 91 years old. Um, just an incredible visionary, an, an extremely fascinating and important figure in this movement. And amazingly enough, Robbie, you had just gone to the Shulgans' farm or house for one of the last, if not the last, barbecue ever. Um, talk about how that happened. Well, yeah. Um, the person that I referred to in the podcast of how I originally got um, introduced to some of these people, got invited to the Shulgin's place in the first place. Um, I reconnected with them after the podcast came out. They listened to it. Um, and they just incidentally, they were like the, you know, possibly the very last barbecue, the very last event at the Shulgin's place is happening in a couple of days. You should come and meet me there. Um, and I didn't know if I was going to be able to go because I had something already going on on Monday. Um, it was a 4th of July barbecue, but I, I decided to sort of move some stuff around and go because, you know, just mostly just to meet my friend because I hadn't seen him in such a long time. Um, and I didn't realize uh, that Anne, um, you know, must have been in such a state where she wasn't, um, she didn't make an appearance at the party. I don't even know if she was actually there. I'm assuming that she was, but I have no, I, I didn't really even ask anybody. Um, so at the party itself, there was like a little table where you can write cards to Anne. Um, you could say some notes to her and put them in a little box. Uh, I'm assuming that there are children, um, that Anne's children uh, probably was uh, managing the party. Um, but you know, I have really, I really don't know. Um, and the only people I recognize there besides my, my friend that I hadn't seen in a long time, uh, was earth and fire. Irwood were there. I didn't get a chance to talk to them, but I did get a chance to actually go inside the lab again, <laughs> which I had not been in, uh, since I don't know, it's been at least 20 years, um, since I was in there and took those pictures that I described in the podcast. And that was, um, an incredible experience and it's just unforgettable. I mean, it, it basically is almost like you're visiting a museum that's not open to the public. Like that's what it feels like. It's such an important part of history that is, you know, after Shulgin, Alexander Shulgin passed Anne's husband uh, and back in 2014, someone part, as part of the family has been keeping up and maintaining uh, the lab itself to make it look presentable. Like I remember when I went in there, it was filthy. It was dusty as hell. There were cobwebs still everywhere, which Shulgin actually liked the cobwebs. He would, he, he would sort of like laugh about that sometimes. So somebody is definitely like cleaning it up, keeping it really nice and tidy. Um, but the one thing that you can't get rid of in that lab when you clean it up is the insane smell. Even as you walk towards the door of it, it smells like, 
it just smells like um like imagine just smelling like a room full of poison or toxic chemicals mm-hmm. like that's what it's as you're walking up to the door of the shed you just smell this acrid smell that's like hitting your nose but it also smells like drugs too like there's an unmistakable like there's something in this smell that smells like psychedelic or psychoactive like almost like a dmt sweetness in in between all these notes of like intense toxic fumes um and outside the door there was a little sign actually that says um this this uh lab has been authorized by the epa now it didn't say dea and I found that kind of interesting because, of course, Shulgin used to have a DEA license to do this stuff. That was taken away. Uh, but apparently the EPA or, or some some law, I guess, still protected what he was doing beyond that era. And the most fascinating thing about that little sign is it said, if you are like a, a law enforcement agent or you're a sheriff or something, call these two local Contra Costa, like law enforcement people before you enter the space. So that, so somehow there's like a local person point person in Contra Costa County who works for the police, whose like responsibility it is to basically explain to people, like if anyone came to Shulkin's lab, you know, a cop thinking it was, you know, drug raid or was going to like raid it. um, This person was responsible for dealing with whoever cop would want to do that. Um, so it kind of makes me actually want to talk to them and be like, so, hey, what was this like, <laughs> you know, being the being the point person in Contra Costa County in case the law came for Shulgin's lab? Um, I just never, I, I, I must have forgotten that that sign was there or not seen it before. But, I mean, the lab was incredible. Abby, I wish you could have come just to see the lab because, um, you know, anybody who's interested in the subject we've been talking about, this is sort of like, it's almost like the Smithsonian Museum for the subject we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like going in there. And it's also shocking still the level of like honor system and openness that the family must be, you know, still allowing there. Cause it's like one of the things that struck me is that it's still so open that I would not be even surprised if there's been a crazy psychedelic person who somehow got to one of those barbecues and managed to gank something you know out of the lab just because they're nuts uh and i i that sort of made me a little nervous like how easy it would have been you know it's such a party like that for someone to do that but again i mean it seems like most people are obviously respectful um they seem very trusting but it's it made me a little nervous to think geez you know there's some some asshole who could come here and, and ruin everything but right Kind of reminds me of like going to Japan when we had that, you know, onsen experience where it's like you're walking into these hotel rooms, lobbies with you have the key or the passcode, basically, they don't even lock it. And you could just like, if you were a crazy drunk American, you could probably cause some major damage if you're a real piece of shit, you know, if you wanted to. Yeah, one of the best experiences of my life going through those lobbies and those different sauna houses and all like the samurai swords and these ancient statues that are just like presented and there's like no one manning anything. But when you told me that you had an invite to the last barbecue at the Shulgin's residence, I honestly wanted to fly out there even though I wasn't invited, but I wanted to fly out there just because it was, I mean, it was just such an incredible opportunity, Robbie, especially after doing such deep dives into these figures and all of their work and just appreciating so much like the levels that they contributed, especially the Shulgins. And so it was just, it was like kismet um, for that to happen all at once right after the series is released and your friend happened to listen to it and all of that 
just catapulted you to going, being present in, you know, in Anne's presence, whether or not she was there or not, just the fact that you were at the compound, you know, and you were able to be in the lab just days before she left this earth, I think is just a really profound thing. Um, just a really beautiful thing that you were able to do that, Robbie, and just be in the presence of these people once again. And you were also able to visit the cactus garden. Yeah. I took some pictures. Um, and of course, I asked if I if it was okay to first. Um, so I got permission. And, and yeah, there was this cactus garden's all still there. Um, it looks surprisingly innocuous. When you see it, you're like, oh, is this just all like San Pedro? Like, what are they? They all look almost the same when you're looking at them kind of from far away. But apparently they're all very different. Um, varieties. There's some San Pedro there, which is a mescaline containing cactus, but most of them are different. Um, I, they weren't even, they didn't even have like little identifying markers on them. He did have actually quite a lot of the, the, it's not San Pedro. It's called Peruvian torch cactus. It actually has more mescaline in it than San Pedro, but it's harder to come across. And I noticed he had, um, several nice pieces of that. And, you know, other than that, I really don't know. It's kind of a mystery. The cactus garden, I think, is almost something that people, again, who are into these the psychedelic aspect of the Shulgans, don't pay as much attention to uh, because it's not because his last book about cactuses was hardly about you know anything psychedelic. It was about these other chemicals in cactuses, cacti. And um, although, can you share what your friend said, or is that no? You yeah, I can. Share that? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, of course. My friend uh, from way back, he, he liked to drop um, sort of insider, you know, knowledge about things that Shulgin told him or would tell other people that were never like published in books. Shulgin was, uh, as the you know, as the clip indicates from the last episode, he was a guy who maintained his sense of humor to the point where he kind of was a troll in like a way that was pretty hilarious at times. Like he would do things just to mess with people in ways that were not mean spirited, like. For example, he would never carry his driver's license or photo ID. He would only carry around his passport. And he would like get into confrontations with people who would refuse to accept his passport as a form of ID and be like, what do you like? How, why is this not acceptable? Like, this is like the main global form of ID. And he would get like, he would just do things like that just, just because he thought it was funny. Um, and one of those things that he would tell people, and nobody really knows, I guess this is, hasn't really been confirmed. Um, maybe it has by someone who is close to them. I don't know, but that in the process of writing his last book, Quecall, which was not about psychedelic cacti, he inadvertently discovered a psychedelic series of compounds in a cacti that he was not able to. So this is what was interesting about it. That extract, right? Well, he was able to extract individual components from the cactus but individually, they didn't do anything. They had almost no psychoactive property. Um, and he did it to the point where he believed and he was sure that he had gotten every active component out of that cactus. What he concluded was that something about this cactus that was producing a psychedelic or psychoactive effect must have been a synergy between multiple uh, compounds in that cactus. And he could not figure out what combination or how to combine them together to have that effect other than just taking the cactus itself. So that's a really interesting 
sort of just find in and of itself that he might have just randomly stumbled across another psychoactive similar to how ayahuasca, you cannot just ingest a DMT-containing plant by itself. You have to take it in conjunction with a, an MAOI inhibitor plant, two plants working together to form one psychoactive experience. Which is so incredible to think of back in the first like culture that figured out how to do that. It's mm -hmm. just mind-blowing to think about you were, you know, like how did that activate? Like what was the original ingestion of these two plants together to activate this? It's just, it's really amazing. Well, yeah, you have to think it's one thing to think of how random and remarkable it is for any society to stumble across a psychoactive plant, you know, just in the first place. Like that would mean that those humans or societies would have had to have been like eating or experimenting with every conceivable right, plant in right. their, in their uh, surrounding, right? But then when you add in the extra component of like, well, what, you know, what if a plant did nothing when you take it, it didn't have any nutritional value or psychoactive value, then why would you decide to take it again? Like, why would anybody, you would just assume that like that society would be like, that plant doesn't do anything. Right. Like there's no reason. But for some reason, somebody eventually figured out that you take a plant that does nothing, but then when you take another plant with it, it does something. And individually- it does something, big yeah, time. <laughs> individually, either those plants do not do anything by themselves. Well, I guess one of them, the harmaline continuum kind of does, but it's not, it's, you know, it's the minor uh, psychoactive component of the two. So very fascinating. Um, it really, it is like kind of does suggest some sort of like ancient passed down wisdom, like the Terrence yeah. McKenna theory of just like something was passed down mm -hmm. from s something else <laughs> because it's like how I still, I mean, humans are, of course, are geniuses, but it is just very fascinating stuff. It is fascinating stuff, and I mean, there's all sorts of, I don't know if there's a mythology or a legend behind how that came to be. I'm sure that there is, if you talk to some actual, like, practicing ayahuasca shamans, but I do know that with salvia in, um, in uh, is it called a wax? How do you pronounce that Mexican? Oaxaca. Oaxaca, I Mexico. Um, there, it's the only place in the world that has salvia growing in the wild, and I put in the wild in quotes because even the people who know where to find it and like the shamans who practice with salvia in Oaxaca, they they fully um, admit that this is not a native plant to their region, that it was brought to them at some point, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and, um, and they actually believe it was brought to them by aliens. So wow. the salvia plant itself, nobody, no botanist, nobody has been able to figure out not only where it originates from, which is very fascinating, because it's non-native to Oaxaca. So there's an area where they go and cultivate it, but it's been like grown like almost like people using part of the rainforest as a garden, where it's not, you know, wasn't native to there. And the people who go and cultivate it know that it's not native to there. That it's sort of like almost like a far they're farming it, so to speak. But it's it is really strange that um you know that that's that's kind of one of the more known legends in terms of like a psychedelic plant uh, that implies that the origin is is completely mysterious even to the people who are sort of responsible for the whole culture surrounding it now. And what I was just reading today, a botanist said um, in a book, I think it was actually D.M. Turner. He's not probably not a botanist, but he was he brought up a really interesting point in his Salvia Divinorum book, saying that um, it's a hybrid. 
between two different plants and, and people have not actually figured out what plants it's a hybrid from either, which is also bizarre. So this like ran so it seems very wow. random too that salvia even like exists. Or what if it got lost in time? Like how do it literally is only cultivated by this one group in Mexico. Like can you imagine how lucky we are in a sense for even knowing about this? Like what if it just what if it just you know all died and, and nobody well, I, continued cultivating it? I had no idea that it was specifically harvested, like cultivated from a different type of the same plant. Like it's been honed in it's a hybrid between two different plants and they don't know where, like, oh, what yeah, two no, different. yeah, 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 no, that's insane. Yeah. And so someone hybridized, hybridized, someone, it. someone has not only <laughs> been cultivating this and right. keeping it up, like, artificially, it doesn't grow anywhere right. in the wild, but that, yeah, someone originally did made a hybridization. It seemed that's what it seems like. Wow. I mean, it could have been happening in a natural setting, it happens, but it's, it's still very odd. Um, and it probably will ever forever be a mystery. I mean, I, it's just one of those things. There's like no, there's no ancient writings about, you know, salvia or even ayahuasca in a way that's like, oh yeah, this for sure is ayahuasca or this for sure is salvia. It's all people guessing. Um, right. We Very really, yeah. Aliens, dude. Yeah. Speaking of aliens, someone on our Discord channel, um, I want to actually plug him, so I want to get in here and, okay. and give him some cred because he's fucking awesome. Let me, I'm going to go in there um, and see His name's Azonic. It was, a, it was a private DM between us, but he was talking about how there's been a documentary following up to the Rua Zimbabwe mass sighting event where 62 students at the aerial school aged between 6 and 12 you know, had that mass hallucination that they shared and, you know, fast forward 30 years, I think this was in 1994. So, um, yeah, almost almost 30 years later, someone went and did a pretty comprehensive documentary that you can watch online. But, yeah, he says it's really good and it is very creepy. And a lot of the kids now, of course, adults, you know, just talk about how they just completely stand by their story. So definitely want to check that out. Thank you for the the plug, Azonic. I will definitely watch that and we'll talk about it on a future episode. I'm going to make Robbie watch it too. Oh yeah. I'm obviously really fucking want to watch that. <laughs> I mean, just watching, and I must have, it must have actually been footage from the documentary talking about, because watching the kids as adults talking about it, it was like a, a very emotionally intense for me, even just to watch those clips, um, because I do believe them, and and that brings up that just raises so many questions. You know, if I believe them, what does that actually mean? What are they saying? It's it's it kind of just blows your mind. Um, so I recommend other people obviously check that out too if you if you haven't, and if you find stuff like Bob Lazar interesting or convincing, who I personally think. You know, I'm on the fence about this. To me, uh, will probably also be of interest to you. Yeah, I mean, it's different than anything else out there. Um, yeah, that's what's so fascinating about it. I did see a brief clip on like Australian news or British news or something. It's hard to of the, of <laughs> it's hard the to tell the difference the, the of the adults. Actually, yeah, a couple normie, just soccer mom looking women who were just like, you know, they couldn't be any more like your normie neighbors, and they were just like talking about it it was it was pretty bone chilling to see yeah the best part about that one the overall story of that one compared to the african uh, school incident was the african school incident only the children admitted to seeing it right but in the australian incident the teacher later admitted to it 
Wait, like, what? Yeah, the first the teacher lied and said and and said the kids were crazy. Didn't kind of like the you know the 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 governor in um what was it Arizona, <laughs> but no, it was a similar it was a similar thing where it was like the the teacher later came out and said I saw it. The kids were absolutely right. I have oh no God. fucking idea what this is, and it it's completely changed my life. And it's one Wait, of the, let's, the creepiest thing I've ever really, experienced. Wow. Let's really quickly differentiate this. Yeah, I, I didn't actually make that clear. This is a separate incident yeah. where there was no figure that they saw, but they did see a craft that like crashed in like the forested area away from the school. And, and so the, a couple, I forget how many children or whatever, or teenagers like went, yeah, went and saw this. And then, you know, to see them talk about it later. So you're saying that a teacher actually came forward later and was yeah. like, yeah, even though they denied it at first and mm-hmm. claimed that the kids were conspiring and all of that. So they yeah, described everything exactly like how the kids saw it. And one of the most fascinating things about that one, yeah, no, no creature comes out like in the African school story but the craziest part about the australian one is that one of the girls describes a ufo like landing directly in front of her that was like the size of something that would be like way too small for like any living sentient like living creature to be inside it was like she describes it almost like it was a drone like a five foot in in diameter like glowing flying saucer that like literally landed right in front of her and she went to touch it and almost like it was playing with her like a toy like some kind of living toy that would like glow and like m- like move away from her like it was letting her chase it and stuff. I mean that shit is just absolutely fucking weird. I mean I don't Well, even- and it like goes against the laws of like what we understand of how even drones operate because yeah. it did, it made no sound. It like was moving at such a bizarre pace that it didn't match even what she described as like modern drone technology that we know today of course. 30 or you know 20 years later of what they experienced she was just like i still can't wrap my mind around that based on even the military technology that we've seen come since so i think uh, just as a side note abby i think your appearance on joe rogan might have actually had a slightly good influence on him because i noticed he started recently saying that he's starting to smell bullshit with like all the ufo amped up news to the point where he thinks it's some kind of military psyop like that's his position now he doesn't really articulate very much but it's like he kind of reached this limit where i think maybe on some level he realized his own show was becoming like Mm -hmm. a powerful conduit for amplifying this because christopher mellon and stuff went on his show i mean it really became like one of the primary new so like I just thought that was interesting that he is now saying that because it is, I mean, you do have to wonder, even if you believe that some of this stuff is real, you know, Abby and I believe some of this stuff is real, that these people aren't lying. It still is very odd that the military and the U.S. government is all of a sudden like wanting to encourage this talk. Marco Rubio. Yeah, including people like (laughs) fucking Marco Rubio, dude. Come on. So Guido challenge. Yeah, I mean, Joe did seem particularly fascinated with that angle of it. Um, because before I we went live, we were talking about the movie phenomenon that you had told me about right before I went on, and I saw it like mm-hmm. literally the night before, and it was like really fucked me up. And so to to explore just the military angle specifically and like the psyop nature of the embrace of UFO or what do they call it now? Oh, UAP. UAP, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad to hear that. That's interesting. It was interesting how no one reacted from the UAP community yeah, at all. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting too. And I and it's interesting because when I talk to people who are 
really like involved in it now they they will admit that a lot of this seems like it's a psyop that it's getting like accepted so there are people who definitely take our position but yeah no i thought that was weird too like corbell like none of those people did and you know i'm frankly suspicious of all those people who get a lot of publicity over this like especially louis alzando Mm -hmm. corbell i don't i don't know you know exactly what i think about them but it it's just interesting to me that there are definitely certain sort of amplified messengers for this right now. And it makes me really curious, you know, what is actually going on here? Like why it would be just as crazy as the U S government to me coming out and saying, guess what? We faked the moon landing. We admit it. (laughs) Um, Everybody should know this now. I mean, it's that crazy to me. It would be that it's that big of a deal. So. Yeah, it is. It is pretty crazy. Um, another thing that was discussed on our Discord, and for people who are listening who aren't Patreon subscribers, you can get exclusive access to our Discord channel. I'm constantly engaging there. It's really fun to talk to our subscribers and just get to know you guys a little bit better. And um, this is all happening on Discord that you can get access to for for you know five bucks a month, um, and also of course the exclusive podcast that we put out. But Another dude who's super awesome, who's always uh, talking on there, brought up the boys and just brought up, I, I his name completely slipped my mind. He has the, like the um, King Salman, <laughs> like, you know, the glowing orb as his avi, I think. Uh, so props to you, dude. But yeah, you brought up the boys and my brother had a really interesting take on the original subversive nature of the show going a little bit downhill and becoming a little bit too MAGA-oriented, deflecting the evil nature of the U.S. empire and the original kind of, you know, really appealing nature of the show of, like, depicting, like, you know, an Obama-type figure that was Homelander and then becoming kind of about Nazis and kind of deflecting how, no, the U.S. isn't really the evil empire that we all think it is. No, 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 it's really that Vought took like like an operation paperclip style like whatever the fuck that v compound is from like the nazis and it was all about nazism yeah so i decided to give the latest uh season a chance and even though it still is like very very maga oriented and homelander has just become basically trump there is a slightly funny element to it that i i did appreciate that is touching on the QAnon shit <laughs> of how like basically, you know, anyone who opposes Homelanders like believes in child trafficking. So now um, Starlight, you know, is like basically depicted as like evil, you know, the evil yeah. cabal running children and trafficking children. And then, so that that's a pretty funny element, but I think I do appreciate also like the making fun of liberal tokenizing and superficiality of like woke identity politics and so you see um a train is now like wearing like african garb as like his yeah. rebrand <laughs> even though like they're just like you do not give a shit about like black issues or africa like the slave trade but he's like has like this comic book and like movie deal where it's like him <laughs> coming from the african slave ship uh-huh. and, shit. and so um so i appreciate that they you know definitely and also, I thought it was cool how they did, you know, unlike Stranger Things, who they just literally made up whole cloth that the that Russia were the ones who, like, funded the Contras or something. I, if someone brought, I think someone did brought that up. Really? I yeah, dude, it was kind of like 
it was like Call of Duty making up how the Highway of Death was like a Russian that is war amazing. crime. Wow. Yeah, they literally inserted like a U.S. war crime uh, de- paramilitary death squad operation and made and, and attributed it to Russia. That is fascinating. So I do appreciate that at least the boys did have a whole sequence where they relived the the, the CIA funding of the Contras and the drug running, and then of course the Mujahideen freedom fighter stuff. And I appreciated that they brought that back. So. Definitely this season, I think, is bringing it back a little bit. Yeah, it's bringing it back a little bit, but I, I think, I do think I, I, I it, it, yeah, it lost something in terms of being, trying to go into that partisan, you know, MAGA mm. movement thing. I don't know if you watched actually the finale, the season Mm-mm. finale, Abby. Um, I won't spoil anything, but uh, it's definitely showing that, um it's moving things in a direction of more like January 6th, like MAGA movement. Oh like my God. Homelander, even though he um, is becomes increasingly terrible, even on the final episode, uh, it's this sort of fork in the road where it's like, are the QAnon people going to be, you know, uh, like scared of him now or are they going to embrace him? And of course they all end up yeah. embracing him. Right. Um, when he when this really horrible thing happens and like one of the last scenes actually it's kind of funny the season the season finale it all it had so many endings it almost reminded me of return of the king by peter <laughs> jackson and i almost turned it off because i was like this is this is just dragging like it isn't this episode already over and i'm glad i i didn't turn it off because the very last scene with homelander was like oh like that okay that's what was worth watching yeah, for yeah um, but it's i mean it's super unrealistic the way they are I think they where they're portraying even like um that uh the the black girl's stepdad, how he's like turning, you know, becoming increasingly more like a QAnoner, and then the wife is like the, not so Oh yeah, no, it's totally cartoonish. That was really heavy handed because I've like known a real person in real life who was normal and went down the QAnon rabbit hole. And I just feel there's a better way to like write that. That felt very ripped from the headlines, you know, like um Kind of just like it, it felt, it it felt it already feels a little bit dated. I guess what I'm saying. So yeah, no, you're totally right. And and another thing about the partisanness of it, um, the fact that it still portrays that there are like good guys. You know, it's like good guys versus the bad guys, and like the MAGA people are like the bad wing. And then there's the good good guy, like A-Train, you know, turns good kind of. And it's just yeah. like, no, like all these people are complicit in what MAGA, the MAGA movement and whoever Trump was, you know. And so that, That's what that was element's about kind the of first, lost. Yeah. First season, I think. I mean, because right. they definitely made certain of the heroes who are always started as horrible people seem like they were turning good in this mm-hmm. season. And I thought that that was, it wasn't believable and it also just feels a little less cynical and a little more cutesy than it needs to be. I think the show would always be better by just going full balls to the wall, crazy, you know, watchman style commentary on how everything is fucking fucked up. Like, um, but I, I don't think, I mean, you can't, it's too hard to make a show like that. No one would watch that. Like if they actually made a show with no emotional core, you could hold on to. Yeah. Or just like a bunch of horrific people. But that's I, I would that's what I would prefer. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, it's better than the last season. I will I will say for sure. Yeah, I'm glad that they pivoted away from the hard Nazi angle and are bringing it back into the fold of at least 
American culture, but yeah, it is definitely too heavy-handed and cartoonish in the way that they're depicting the QAnon stuff, but it, it, there's some funny elements to it. So I'm excited to see the season finale. I just watched an incredible fucking movie. I don't know if you've seen this. It, it no, just was so different. mentioned it to different. me earlier. I didn't see it. I mean, it was just fascinating. I don't want to get too far into it because I know we have so much to talk about, but I just want to recommend it to our audience. It's called The Reformer with Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried. And the reason that I like it a lot um, is because you do not see movies talking about the apocalyptic doom and gloom of climate change in a really creative and brilliantly artistic way. And this absolutely took the cake. Oh, this is the Paul Schrader movie from from like four years ago. Yeah, I, it's I 2017. Never saw it. Yeah, brilliantly shot. Like every shot is is art, you know, so that makes it easier to to watch anyway, despite the subject matter, but it's just really subversive. It talks about how the church is getting funding from like these giant oil polluters and they're, it's just a really cool, lot of layers. Um, definitely recommend it. It reminded me of like a more um, hard hitting, like cutting political commentary version of Arlington Road in a, in a totally different way, but both great movies. Um, Robbie, what do you think about this is completely fucking predictable and hilarious, but Elon Musk pulling out of the Twitter deal. I'm really, I have to say, Abby, I'm, I'm really saddened. I mean, this <laughs> is the, this is the final death rattle for free speech. I mean, after this, what hope is there left for free speech? If, if Elon Musk was going to save it, um, I don't really, yeah, it's a, it's a really tragic um, and it's also just, I mean, it's really funny how anyone thought this was going to go through. Right. Really did seem like some kind of publicity stunt. I don't think it was to feed his own ego though. Um, I think that he did it to play into whatever's all this other shit is that we're seeing that all, that always to me feels like some kind of psyop. It is very weird the way that he pulled all these right wingers with him got them all loyal to him all of a sudden, and then just started chatting up like Mike Cernovich and Tim Pool and all the, like, it wasn't just, to me, the most interesting thing about that wasn't that he said, I'm going to buy Twitter, everybody, and they're giving me a hard time. They don't want me to buy it. Like, they're really, you know, it was like, he that was part of the surface level narrative about what was happening is like the elites or the deep state was trying to give him a hard time from buying it or something because he's a maverick or whatever. But the the b b right below the surface story that was way more interesting to me was all of a sudden, Elon Musk starts acting like he's against the right and the left, or the extreme right and the left, saying like, you know, it's time we get like more moderate views in here because it's like, if 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 ten percent of the extreme right and the extreme left are unhappy, then that's a good thing, you know, like that means that we're doing the right thing on Twitter. Meanwhile, he's like heavily chatting it up with like some extreme right-wing fascists on Twitter acting as if it's a normal thing to do and but he never like did that before so I just find it really odd and strange that all of a sudden here's Elon Musk replying to all of Tim Pool's tweets all of Mike Cernovich's tweets um all these different crazy right-wing people who are like are not considered moderate by any measure and he's acting as if that's a normal thing to do and no one ever like in these interviews he did where people are like so what is your political orientation like you seem like you're a little right wing no one ever presses him on that stuff they're just always like by his you know answer that he is like more moderate um, i know that's what irritates me no one knows this 
this aspect of like subculture of the internet well enough and has followed these people people's careers well enough it's just like the superficial nonsense that they take away from other headlines and stuff the people who actually have access to people like Elon Musk and there's no deep cuts at all and it's so fucking obvious the game that these people are trying to play it's the same game that people like Tim Pool play himself by saying oh i'm a mo- i'm actually a center leftist I'm actually a moderate centrist or whatever the fuck that means. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, all he does, he has like Cassandra Fairbanks running his news publication. Yeah. <laughs> the person who said Pino, like I'm like more radical than Pinochet. Like I, I would uh-huh. like, you know, like posting memes of throwing people out of helicopters. It's like, this is really strange that you guys pose as, first of all, that there's this fucking false dichotomy between the far left and far right like who are you actually talking about i don't like are you talking about like dyed in the wool like neo-nazis like i don't even understand what elon musk means by that yeah well that's that's a really good question it's and it's like we hear all this talk constantly about this realignment that's really exciting even assange and greenwald years ago were talking about how exciting it was there's this realignment happening where it seems like the right is waking up to all these issues what i see more happening is like a forced artificial realignment to falsely make it seem like far right extremists are not psychopaths like that's literally what i'm seeing happen and that is not a realignment that is like a whitewashing campaign of some kind that is just very bizarre i don't i don't get it um and it's obviously dangerous but it's like a lot of people get sucked into it along the way. Well, it's a tale as old as time. And that's Bannon's strategy was to take the disaffected Bernie voters. That's why he had, that's why he loves Red Scare. That's why he does these weird interviews with people who claim to be on the left, but really it's kind of this post left that really is just a euphemism for right wing Mm -hmm. that still identifies somehow as like Marxist. There's this, you see this popping up all over the place. And this is like a tale as old as time with fascist adjacent co-optation of Marxist um, ideology, people who are completely disaffected from like the liberal, like detached from this kind of neoliberal culture Mm -hmm. and identity politics and moving them over to the right. And I see it happening every day and it's super fascinating because what it is to me is just as superficial as what the liberals do to progressivism and issues like LGBTQ rights and pro-abortion rights. It's like, how come we can see through that, but you can't see through what the right wing is doing to co-opt these radical ideas and fold them into their model of economics? It's absolutely fascinating, Abby. And I thought, I thought a lot of these people were phony or projecting some kind of fake Marxism in order to push their own right-wing agenda. I assume that. But I actually started seeing like people who seem totally convincingly Marxist to me, um, and I don't know who these people are, it's mostly just on social media, acting as if this this Dutch farmer protest, is this is it. Like These are the real working class people we need to have solidarity with, just like the truckers in Canada or the truckers in America we're the people we need to have working class solidarity with, not these fucking Starbucks employee libs who fucking, you know, get obsessed with wokeness and identity politics. Like, fuck those people, those fucking phonies. Um, it's it's like, you really want to be solidarity with the working class? Then fucking embrace the Dutch farmer protest now. <laughs> what and I'm just what thinking, dude, that? what in the hell is this bullshit? I'm sorry, but when I just see everybody randomly saying, like, we need to support a protest in a foreign country all of a sudden... 
I have like color revolution red, red flags going off on my brain immediately. And I thought that that used to be the normal response of people on the left is you don't immediately jump onto a protest in another foreign country with zero context because it could be a color revolution or some kind of regime change scheme. But also, all of a sudden, it's just like, Dutch farmer protest, bro. Get on fucking board, dude. Because this is fucking it. You got to have show working class solidarity. And guess what? If you are if you really want to show working class solidarity, Abby, uh, you got to get over your identity politics and fucking embrace anyone wearing a MAGA hat that's a trucker, that's a farmer. And even if they have abhorrent views about gay people... Uh, that you need to look past that because those are the real working class, not the people who are gay who happen to be also in the working class. We need, we have to erase them because they're too woke, Abby, and therefore they're not Marxist. Um, I, it's very strange that that is an increasing mentality I see. And I and it's just like, how is this not an op? It's just well, again, it <laughs> again, it it's just steering things more towards the right and then you, I mean, I can't even go and off like on this. the Marjorie Taylor Greens. I was and, just going to say yeah, that. Yeah. I, I mean, even. I mean, let's go off on her because she's completely insane. Like Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the fact that she can just go on Twitter or whatever and just be like free Assange and everyone's like, oh my God, she's amazing. It's like, well, okay, there's plenty of Democratic politicians who, oh God, yeah. It's like, do we even want to go? <laughs> I mean, it's just so Well, there's insane. other Republicans. I mean, that, that my point was that there's other Republicans were not insane, like Justin Amash. Like Justin Amash. I mean, who, he's not in Congress anymore, but like, yeah, I mean, he, no one ever gave him cred because he was a sane person. That's what's so weird about it. I don't, I don't get it why lifting up Ron DeSantis and Marjorie Taylor Greene is appropriate just to make a point about how bad the Democrats are on certain issues. I, I don't understand um, but it's, it's, I mean, I, it can't be stopped. Everybody seems to, even Code Pink was like, Marjorie Taylor Greene is outflanking the, the Dems. And it's like, I don't, you guys never talked about like Justin Amash or any like actual principled people who were not on the liberal, you know, liberal side who talked about these things. You're just talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like why? It just seems really strange. I don't get it. I do She's not understand. She's a rabid, vitriolic, anti-gay psychopathic bigot QAnon her she gives everything a bad name and she taints everything she talks about and none of her rhetoric can be believed that's the thing it's like we should never give someone credit who is a con artist and you cannot believe anything that they say so why would I take anything that she's saying at face value has she talked about what war crimes Assange that's exposed exactly. that she is passionate about that's exactly the point it's like if you're on the right wing and you just say a boilerplate statement like I support Assange I mean okay uh so you know supporting Assange is good but why do you mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like anybody ever bothers to ask it's like just the catchphrase is good enough where it's like but what what is the real reason why she would support Assange she obviously doesn't seem to care about US war crimes um, none of these, most of the right-wingers who talk about Assange don't seem to. In fact, they wanted Chelsea Manning hung uh, when that happened, you know, when those leaks happened. So I just find it astonishing that it, all it takes is just boilerplate catchphrases still. That, Same with Trump. Yeah, that play into the alt-media 
you know, thing that people like to hear, just like what Tulsi Gabbard was doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, don't you guys realize by now that these politicians have just learned to say like alt media friendly catchphrases? Like they, they, it's all strategy. Um, And I just, I'm, I can't even talk about it. No, I mean, it really is. It is so inside Bannon's head. I mean, I really, I just can't stress that enough that when you say it's an op, it really is. And it really is just acting on its own devices because it's been put into motion by people like Bannon very insidiously and intentionally so. So it's just, it's sad, but we just have to keep fighting. I mean, we did this through the entirety of Trump's term and it was very frustrating and it just you know, never cease. That's, that's the problem. Even when he never pardoned Assange, whatever, whatever, I still hear people defending his rhetoric. Um, so let's talk about the latest that uh, populist hero Ron DeSantis just did. You know, not only, and we're going to get into Roe v. Wade later, not only signing the abortion bill, the restrictive abortion bill in Florida, but he also is he just signed a bill requiring a political survey of Florida students and professors. Um, the problem with this is that this could put institutions at risk of losing funding if they, you know, if they say, oh, we're, I mean, first of all, let's just be honest. What professors and what institutions in Florida are going to explicitly say that they're like Marxist Leninists or like socialists or anything? Like, that's not a thing anyway. That's such a right wing myth that's been perpetrated baselessly. But I guess that's, it's just the fear. It's like the chilling effect is in place by having these surveys just to get it out there. Like, okay, you know, it's like kind of like during the Red Scare. It's like, okay, let's, let's data mine these institutions and see who is like the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't know really if, if they're going to cut funding, if people say that they are or not leftist, but it just, it's just very creepy that this is what he's focusing on at the same time. Spooky Chris Rufo spook boy, um, is like praising the fact that somehow he has inserted his anti CRT doctrine and like put it through Florida's curriculum. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is pretty scary stuff. I mean, and for people who think that what Chris Rufo and Ron DeSantis are doing is organic and it's not part of some coordinated um, rollout, uh, I really recommend you listen to our previous episode about Ron DeSantis and Disney. Um, I have gotten a lot of DMs from people, Abby, who have said to me, you know, I'm more to the left. I thought that this anti-gay stuff was alarming, but I really genuinely thought Chris Rufo and Ron DeSantis were just like bloviating, you know, you know, people trying to play this populist game until I listened to your podcast about it until I heard you and Abby talk about it. Um, I didn't think anything was weird beneath it. And now I'm convinced that this is some kind of operation um, that it's, it's clearly coordinated. It's clearly trying to amp up some kind of strategy of tension. And I think, uh, it's to me, I really only need to know that Chris Rufo has a strange past. He made documentaries about the Uyghurs for the US government funded um, outlet PBS uh, back in like 2000, the mid 2010s. Wait, really? I mean, yeah. I knew that he made the documentaries. I didn't realize it was for PBS back then. That's oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what would, what was he part of? Like, what was he? That's a very what good What credibility question. did he have to even like be granted? That's a very good question. To me, it almost just seems kind of like he was plucked out of obscurity. 
Um, and again, j- again, even now, it's like nobody knew who this guy was until he got all these CRT leaks from mm. the Treasury Department. Um, he got all these leaks from internal Disney Zoom chats. This guy is the luckiest conduit for leaks uh, since like Glenn Greenwald. And I've this is unprecedented for a random person to get this many like exclusive leaks and to be driving something this strong. And yeah, he's taking credit for it because... He know. I mean, he knows that it, it. It's like his rhetoric and his stuff is literally shaping Florida legislation right now, um, and it almost seems like some kind of canary in the coal mine stunt to me to see how far this can go, and it's going pretty fucking far because even just having to sign what political affiliation you have, that sends a very clear message. Has Ron DeSantis ever gone out there and said we need to combat? Uh, views on the extreme left and the extreme right no it's all about unmistakably all about going after the the left so like there isn't even a pretense here of going after extremism at large which you know i guess you could kind of make it seem that that was really what it was about yeah, but there's not, not even, even the trying. pretense of that yeah he's not even trying no so this sends a clear message be careful if you're someone who's too left um they're coming for your job or they might even come in for your attendance at the school. Um, or you get put on a list. I mean, if you're not already on a list, you know, federally. So Yeah, with the trans bill and the abortion bill and now this, it just it's getting increasingly increasingly disturbing over in Florida, as if it already was not disturbing enough. Mm-hmm. Um, just the nature of Florida being what it is. But Ron DeSantis's whole fake fight against Disney and it's standing up to big corporations and stuff. I mean, okay, so does he support taxing billionaires? Like, I mean, it's just so fake. You know, none of none of this makes any sense beyond the political theater to co-opt again, like the ideas that people just parrot unquestioningly. It's just really sad to see it just continue. I'm glad people are waking up. I saw, you know, you did this great interview with Ben Norton specifically about this notion of fake right populism that we re-promoted. You can check it out on Media Roots SoundCloud. Um, but no, I mean, I think people are waking up to this the more popular it becomes because it, it is totally baseless. Yeah, and just a little tidbit I wanted to throw out there about Ron DeSantis. A lot of people have this impression that he's, you know, from an Italian immigrant family. He isn't an elitist. You know, somehow he is genuinely able to speak uh, for the common man. Well, uh, he got, a, I think, a suspicious scholarship to Yale for playing baseball. And guess who else uh, famous in a lot of the, you know, the characters, cast characters we talk about, got the same scholarship, George H.W. Bush. So I'm not saying that that means oh, he's CIA. Oh, dude, that's hilarious. CIA, dude, that's hilarious because George W. Bush like, wasn't is smart enough to get into the Yale, so he had to get some fake sports scholarship. No. It was fucking and just hilarious, like, it's dude. It's like someone has helped Ron DeSantis climb, and I think it's pretty clear that he has been like groomed. You know, people uh, even on the left believe that Obama was groomed, you know, by like forces in politics to get him to the level he was. Yeah. Ron DeSantis clearly the same fucking thing. Um, so... It's just odd to me that it's like we get, you know, Buttigieg gets this label of being like a mysterious, spooky guy who had a mysterious, you know, blank mark on his Afghanistan record. That means he's CIA. I mean, look into Ron DeSantis. There's mysterious uh, blank spots all over his military record. He served in Gitmo. He claims he was a JAG officer. There's very little record of him doing anything. Um, and I, I just think it's, it's to me, it's 
Yeah, it's let's just say it's us. <laughs> yeah, and also, it. yeah, and also he's going out there all the time denouncing Maduro, denouncing Cuba, denouncing yes, exactly. the new president of Colombia, which is like not even explicitly communist. It's like super crazy. It's like he's super pro regime change, mm-hmm. you know. So how does that fit into the mold of all these dumbasses who want to pretend like he's some like anti-interventionist, like? populist hero it's just it's cartoonish it really is well he's i mean i think one of the interesting things about him that makes it that's different from him and people like trump is again he's not even putting up the pretense of being Mm -hmm. Mm anti-regime change right he is like i think what he's doing actually there is as much as it's not real and to me it's very phony that a lot of magas are say they're anti-regime change it still i think presents a problem for some elites so I do think there is a utility in basically channeling all the Trump energy into just someone who's much more of just like 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 Trump in a lot of superficial ways, but is also just very much a straight down the road like neocon when it yep. comes to regime change. Yep. And that's what we're seeing that realignment happening now because even libertarians, Abby, I'm hearing every day that libertarians are like ignoring all this stuff about a Zionism and regime change and just praising his anti-woke and COVID policies. And it's like, if they're not concerned about it, that to me tells me that the entire MAGA movement is being set up to be poured into that bucket. Oh my God, it's such a, such a good point. Yeah. They're, it's, that's it's the, that's the realignment. Absolutely. 100%. And look what they did. I mean, even what Rand Paul, you know, he was always supposed to act like this kind of check and balance against even the Republicans. And look what happened to him during the MAGA movie. He became Trump's fucking, you know, like fluffer, basically. Yeah. So it's like, you know, Justin Amash kind of came out clean at the end and was like, dude, all the libertarians in Congress are fucking idiots. I mean, he didn't say that, but he's like, they all got fucking scammed by this president, you know? Um, dude, but anyways, man. it's Jesus. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something good. Um, okay. Shinzo Abe. <laughs> no, just, <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking... Uh, with all the mass shootings that happen all the time, all the rampant gun violence and easy accessibility to guns, it's so fascinating that even a statistical probability, you do not see anyone in power just being a victim of gun violence. It's a very no. interesting thing, especially compared to the 60s and 70s, that it was just constant. I don't think that you could really attribute it to like security. I mean, fucking Jeff Bezos was just walking around Anaheim with just like one security guard. So I'm not sure that that is really the answer, but it is fascinating. I don't know if it's just the complete and utter alienation and detachment from who is the reason why life is so miserable and, you know, degradation continues to happen um, of our standard of living. But I, 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 I have no idea, but it is just interesting that, like, by chance, no one has really been <laughs> targeted, um, given how much of a tinderbox America is, given the absurd amount of guns in this culture, bringing us to Shinzo Abe. Just as I was thinking this the other day, the former prime minister of Japan gets shot with a homemade gun made out of, I guess, pipes. Um very fascinating stuff. I think it was, I mean, I can't remember the last time there was actually a political assassination. Maybe if, maybe you could refresh my memory if there's been one in recent years, other than like the attempted assassination of Maduro. Um, Buto, but it's super, I mean, cr- oh yeah. Benazar Bhutto. I yeah, mean, she yeah. wasn't in power, but like her getting assassinated, like in that 
caravan was probably the, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time a political leader got assassinated like that. I mean, a Gaddafi maybe, but yeah. different scenario than kind of this where it's just, you know, someone's in public, not during a, a war and they get killed. Um, I'm so, talking about what was, I mean, that was a very interesting case too, because she was talking about how she was going to like expose like the U.S. for something that like lies that they were facilitating about the war on terror. I forget exactly what. She was even saying some things about how bin Laden had been killed already. Like she was saying a lot of things. I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. that scenario, but it is very unprecedented for something like this to happen. And it's shocking to think that the assassin was able to get like directly behind him. I think from what I read, something within nine feet of him. Uh, I mean, absolutely. It, it would almost be like, to me, like Obama or George W. Bush here getting oh. blown away by a shotgun while 100%. doing a speech. Cause he was like a king. He was like a kingmaker. He had a lot of influence in politics still. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just crazy because Japan has some of the strictest gun laws in the world. And so you see, of course, all the right wingers having a heyday being like, see, see. Yeah. It's like, well, the guy did make his own gun. <laughs> he was, I mean, who knows how many other people would have been killed if he had a fucking AR. So let's, let's not go down that road. Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, and he ma apparently made it out of metal and wood. Now, I mean, I don't know if he used real shotgun shells or if he made those too. It doesn't, it doesn't specify, but I mean, as soon as I heard that he got shot with a shotgun that close, I was like, oh, he's not going to make it. I mean, yeah. you know, most assassinations you hear about are like with regular bullets um, that don't like throw shrapnel everywhere. You shoot someone with a shotgun at point blank range, um, it's likely to kill them. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. a really, you know, I think he went into cardiac arrest and showed no vital signs like immediately, but they didn't declare him dead until several hours later. Um, but yeah. Um, and it said, there's another, there's an article that says um, on Reuters, the DIY gun used to kill Japan's Abe was simple to make. Video images showed the assailant fired at Abe with a device that had a pistol grip and what appeared to be two pipes covered in black electrical tape. Now, this is interesting. Police did not rule out the possibility that the bullets were also made by hand, but said that they were still investigating. The, the gun had an electrical firing mechanism, it, but, but experts are saying in this article that acquiring like conventional cartridges for a shotgun would have been much harder to do in Japan than in other countries. So it's suspected also that he somehow made his own cartridges, although that's not confirmed yet. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is pretty wild that this hasn't even happened here in the United States with the availability of firearms. You're right. That is a crazy thing. Um, and it's like impossible to get guns in Japan and yet someone still was determined enough to do this. And apparently he was partly motivated by his mother's own financial struggles, which he blamed on Abe and Abe's connection to the Unification Church, which is a... Korean, um, I think it's a Korean origin, like Christian church, which has a nickname, the Moonies. And they're that weird church that like makes people get married, like does like arranged marriages at these events on stage. Like you get married to a stranger basically. Mm -hmm. And it's like a religious experience. They also mostly own the hill or sorry, not the hill. Um, 
The Hill Rising. Not The Hill Rising. What was the, <laughs> what's the other? The Washington Times. That other like weird right wing. Oh wow! So outlet. like the Falun Gong owns Epic Times and the Moonies yes. own. Wa- wow, that's I. I always knew the Washington Times was like fake, but that's super interesting that it's like a religious cult. Oh yeah, yeah. I oh, mean, wow. and it's it's considered they have a lot more money than Falun Gong, and they have a lot more reach. And I don't know if they're like subsidized by the U.S. government like Falun Gong, Gong is, uh, but they serve a similar role for sure. Where it's like mm-hmm. right wing. I mean, the Washington Times been putting like neocon propaganda even around like nine eleven, some really sketchy stuff. So I don't know, but um, that's all I really know about. It. If you know anything else about the assassin, um, I don't know much about the assassin, but it is Shinzo Abe was just a really bad guy, and I know that his whole legacy was basically him trying to restore the Japanese Empire while denying war crimes and basically genocide in the past with you know the comfort women and everything else and there was like this huge move to incorporate pacifism in the constitution you know especially just after world war ii and what japan was doing and he wanted to upend all of that and so his party and him as a figurehead to do this was actually pretty destructive in general it was it was a pretty out you know it was a pretty he was a kind of an outright fascist honestly um and it's it's he's just not a good guy. And interestingly enough, um, I was just told today, talking to my friend about it, that they actually did just have a supermajority, and which is funny. It's the Liberal Democrats, <clears throat> which is funny that they're called the Liberal Democrats, gained enough seats in Japan's recent election to form a crucial two-thirds majority. They can now amend a clause in the Constitution that um, renounces war. That long-held goal would open the door for Japan to become a military power capable of global leadership. So this happened irregardless of the assassination, but it's interesting that it just all coalesced at the same time, that his legacy carries on with this so-called liberal democratic um, supermajority in Japan's parliament. Yeah, I mean, from what I heard about him is that he... Um, very controversially would actually like like uh, show reverence to actual like Japanese war criminals and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think he even said one of his favorite films um, or maybe it was one of his favorite books was like a tale about like a heroic um, like kamikaze pilot. So I think that stuff was is strange, you know, because like in Germany – you don't have any even modicum of that within anything that's not considered like straight up Nazi party. It's like totally illegal also. (laughs) Well, yeah, like promoting. Yeah. So it is strange how in Japan you don't have that sort of look back. You do actually have a representation of some holdover from that era um, there. And Japanese political history is extremely fucking fascinating um, I recommend if you're interested in it even at all, if you want to start looking into it after this assassination and you don't know about it, look up a very interesting, bizarre character who's considered like a performance artist, filmmaker, writer slash Japanese fascist named Mishima. Uh, extremely, extremely fascinating history. He basically tried to launch a coup against the Japanese parliament, broke in because he became 
friends with and forge relationships with like old Japanese generals who had like sympathies for Japanese fascism. They just straight up let him into the building and he literally tried to do like a murderous coup and filmed himself doing a speech from the top of the building before he committed seppuku or had some one of his colleagues commit seppuku on him. And uh, apparently the seppuku did not go through Wait, entirely. Wait, so what the, was seppuku? The seppuku sword? is this the ritualistic form of suicide yeah. where it's like you you basically... You, you stab yourself in the gut and you, you cut across right? to let your intestines out. Oh my God. And someone stands above you and decapitates you right after you do that. Now, the person who was supposed to decapitate Mishima did not succeed. So then he had to go sit down and all perform seppuku on himself in the middle of the fucking coup. The, the whole story is insane. It would be like someone, it basically would be like January 6th, but if like a small group of people got into the Capitol building, were wearing like straight up Nazi garbs and like started like doing like a film speech from the top roof and everybody was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, who, who are these people? It's, it was like that. Um, you can watch a video of it on YouTube. There's a movie about it as well. It's, it's That wild. is so crazy. I mean, last I'll say is it, it is really interesting that we call Japan a democracy, you know, and they've really been ruled by the same party this right-wing party called the ldp since like 1955 excluding just i think five years or so so it really is kind of this one party regime that dil that still does have a heavily militarized occupying force of the u.s uh i you know okinawa we all know the history of okinawa but it, i think it extends far beyond that and so it's just funny when you see allies of the u.s that basically do not have a functioning democracy at all, never included in any of these countries. Like, I always just assumed that Japan had, you know, normal elections and that there was, like, multi-parties that were, you know, shifting all the time. Like, it's kind of surprising that it's just been this crazy right-wing party that's basically been in power for that long. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know that. I mean, and I had probably a false impression of there being a much more liberal bent to some of their leadership in the past, but that's, that makes sense. That adds up. Um, and yeah, I don't think people also realize how much anti-Chinese rhetoric was coming out of the Japanese government for the past, like four or five years, especially after the pandemic, it really ramped up. And that's part of actually why a lot of Japanese people really like Abe is because he went after China and made it sort of, you know, amplified that sentiment. And Abby, you and I remember that even the nicest Japanese people, you know, the most like friendly, nicest Japanese people, if you hang out with most Japanese people long enough in Japan, you will eventually get to a conversation about how they're, it basically boils down to they don't like Chinese people. Right. I mean, and not saying all Japanese people are like that, but it's much, it's a very common sentiment that is expressed in Japan. Um, and I think that that's probably even worse now, uh, I would imagine. So, Well, what's interesting is Chinese people are the main tourist um, people. Yeah, I mean, they are the main sector of tourism coming in and out of Japan. And so it is interesting. I just recently found this out. By, I wanted to go to Okinawa to film for Earth's Greatest Enemy. And I was shocked to learn that since COVID, they have cut off all tourism. You mm -hmm. cannot go to Japan at all. Um, and so that is, it, it does seem interesting. I mean, it almost is like they use the excuse and just ran with it. They're like, all right, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. it. Like, <laughs> let's just close off our society again. Like we're just better with us. 
Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I mean, it's they had there's a huge tourism industry in Japan, so it's it's kind of fascinating to think what does it feel like over there now? Do the people prefer? Are there a lot of people who are like, good, I don't want any of these fucking tourists mm-hmm. over here now, or are there people who like miss it? I mean, who knows? But mm-hmm. um, that is very extreme. I had no idea until you tried going there that it was that it was closed off like that still. Yeah, for the undetermined uh, amount in the future too. It's like there's no timeline at all Jesus. for when they're going to open this up. It, I, I have no idea. I mean, I would just, I assume China is also as restrictive, but I guess I, I'm surprised at Japan because of how central tourism is to their economy and who knows how much that's impacted them. Um, I want to quickly talk about Chile and Colombia, specifically Colombia, um, I think because we never talked about Chile before on the podcast, and it is just interesting to see this whole realignment, not to use the, <laughs> the the term that we were just using, but it's amazing to see the resurrection of pink tide slash red tide taking over Latin America um, in contra- strict contradiction to the attempt at the reinstallment of the Monroe Doctrine and in direct defiance to the United States empire and United States imperialism and pushing it farther than it has in recent past because when you're looking at a country like Colombia, they've never had a leftist leader. It has always been essentially an extension of U.S. power. It's always been essentially a neo-colony. I mean, you know, first it was, uh, of course, all the counterterrorism with fighting communism, you know, these paramilitary death squads that were trained by the U.S. that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, all of the violence that um, that politicians posit with this false equivocation between, you know, guerrilla fighters like FARC and the ELN, they try to compare it being like, oh, it's just like this, this never-ending battle and that's their reason why they have to just constantly go after like anyone deemed on the left, including union leaders, teachers, farmers, like literally campesinos are all at risk. It is one of the most dangerous countries in the world to just be any of these people. It's very fucking scary. And so, um, you know, for the last 70 years or so, the U.S. has had has poured billions of dollars into Colombia, um, training these death squads, and then it pivoted over to the war on drugs with Plan Colombia, another huge injection of cash. It's basically the Israel of Latin America. You know, just like the Uganda is the Israel of Africa for the U.S. empire, Colombia has been used as a staging ground to not only train all of these death squads and basically control the resources and the flow of drugs, I may add, um, with the recent right-wing parties that were controlling and using the drug war as the pretense to crack down on essentially anyone who's on the left, at the same time, these right-wing figures in government were trafficking drugs themselves, and they all had direct ties to the cocaine trafficking. But also, and I think most importantly, it's used as a staging ground to control surrounding countries, primarily its neighboring country of Venezuela. And so you saw a lot of the operations launched against Maduro, against Hugo Chavez. A lot of the training takes place in Colombia to launch these operations from the border and also to run drugs and, you know, run people through whenever they need to try to destabilize um, this region. Also, it has the most U.S. military bases of anywhere else in Latin America. So I think there's seven, yeah, seven military bases in Colombia 
Um, so, I mean, just just imagine how much control the U.S. has. And, and it is one of the most unequal countries, one of the most violent countries in the entire continent, I will add. It was very scary to go there. I went to Tumaco, a region where there was just a, a massacre of campesinos who were trying to transition from cocaine crops to other crops, and they were just mowed down by paramilitary forces in the middle of the jungle, all under the pretense of fighting these guerrilla forces. It's just a never-ending struggle. And the problem is that the right-wing leadership who was in power for so fucking long, the lineage was um, these really corrupt politicians who were basically you know, under the thumb of the U.S., and they hated the fact that there was a peace deal with the FARC that they didn't have a reason anymore, even though they were still doing it, to just go and just unrepentingly unleash barbarism and fucking violence against anyone who could be construed as the enemy. And so basically, um, Alvado Uribe and his handpicked successor, Ivan Duque, who was leading Colombia for a long, long time before this new guy won, were horrible, right? They hated the fact that there was a spark peace deal and they wanted to abolish it. And that is, and there was other fighting forces that had not arranged the peace deal. So ELN, when I was there in the remote jungle, there was still plenty of armed guerrilla fighters out there fucking hiding out. That was the one thing that they had on their side. That's why FARC was able to survive for so long because they had the terrain, just like the Viet Cong in Vietnam. These people knew the fucking jungle and they fucking hid out in that goddamn jungle. Um, and so it, it's just so crazy that the, this country that's been just beholden to like fascist forces under the thumb of the and repressed by the U.S. for so long was able to elect a fucking former M-19 guerrilla fighter <laughs> with a hair of the vote, 50 0.5% of the vote this guy got. I'm shocked that they didn't try to do a recall and like recount balance and basically try to get him out of office. But it's incredible that this guy was a former guerrilla fighter, previously jailed, granted amnesty. He also was leading an investigation of ties between paramilitary death squads and the government. I met people there who had to have security detail and heavily fortified homes because they were fucking scared of getting assassinated that were doing similar stuff to this guy. So the fact that Gustavo Pedro actually won this fucking election over some like fake right-wing populist Trump type figure, Robbie, some like billionaire mogul guy who was just a fake ass dude who actually praised Hitler, um, like cartoonishly so, he actually fucking won, dude. I mean, it's definitely not like a mandate, but like in terms of like a huge sweeping victory, but it's just insane symbolically. It's a huge thorn in the side of this U.S. hegemony. I'm not sure what he's going to do if, if he's going to try to make waves with the U.S., but just symbolically speaking, just like um, Obrador representing Elmo in Mexico is such a huge shakeup, you know, especially even, even though he still denounces, you know, undemocratic countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, the fact that it's still a thorn in the side of the neoliberal economic suppression and dictates of the region is huge. And whether it's the pink tide or the red tide, um, it, it's an incredible thing that's happening. And the fact that it happened in Chile as well, back in December of 2021, that basically, you know, just threw off the chains of the Pinochet legacy. 
um, and elected some 36-year-old fucking student leader. And now they're doing this huge referendum to rewrite their constitution to include, you know, workers, indigenous rights, women's rights. Like, it's incredible. Neither of these people are openly anti-imperialist leftists as part of, like, the Alba Bolivarian Alliance to resist U.S. colonialism, like Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela are, but, or Bolivia, but it's incredible and it's important. And I think that um, Washington has no idea how to fucking handle this at all. And we saw it we saw what kind of effect that had when Biden tried to, you know, put together this hodgepodge summit of the Americas and no one fucking gave a shit and no one (laughs) showed up. And they were like, dude, you don't control us anymore, bro. We're, we're doing our own shit here. So I'm super stoked on it. I mean, who knows where it's going to go, but right now I'm, I'm just so thrilled that a country like Colombia has like kind of thrown off the shackles of control and is now trying to pave their own future. They're even talking about like stopping fossil fuels, like at the outrage of the economists and all, you know, the Atlantic, everyone's like up in arms being like, Oh my God, they're going to destroy their economy. It's like, no, this guy actually gives a shit about climate change. So watch out, baby. Like shit's shaken up in that region. And it's beautiful to see. I wish I knew more about South American politics, but yeah, that sounds, that sounds positive. Um, I don't think people, I mean, I'm sure people who are anti-imperialist and a lot of people listening to our podcast know how much the U.S. has meddled and fucked with South America. Um, but if you don't know, you should you should probably do do a little bit of reading on it because it's, it's quite insane um, how much we fucked around there. I mean, Panama um, is probably one of the most famous, you know, things uh, that happened, but there's so much other sketchy shit that uh yeah do some reading on it or ch- or watch empire files we did some really yeah. great reports from from colombia we did some reports on the school of the americas that covers a lot of the dark history and legacy of what the cia's role has been in shaping this region and i guess that's that's the overall takeaway is like the fact that the cia has fucked up this region so much right millions of deaths and disappearances and and all of these fucking coups and like 53 military interventions, interventions militarily, we're not including sanctions and whatever soft power shit, quote unquote, that that's like direct shit since like 1953. So, I mean, wrap your mind around that. And the fact that this is the outcome, it was a complete, fi- I mean, yeah, it took, you know, millions of lives were taken and like the struggle continues, but the fact that these people persevere Nevertheless, they persisted like Elizabeth Warren. But I mean, it really, it's so inspiring, Robbie, because I think that we get mired down in the hopelessness and lack of optimism in this country because of how just the lack of capacity to do anything and like rent is just suffocating everyone. And I don't even see how, you know, this legislative coup that just happened with the Supreme Court, it's getting really dire and it's really easy to get totally sucked into hopelessness because it a lot of times it does feel that way. But when you look at this region of the world, I really, I get inspired and I really try to take some optimism from the fact that they were in a state of complete destitution, neocolonialism and fucking outright fascism. And like that led them to this point. You know, and it's it's beautiful, and um, I just hope that we can we can take a cue from them and try to organize ourselves accordingly. 
Yeah. I mean, I have to admit for myself, I, I do feel increasingly hopeless about America's possibility for a revolution. Um, but who knows? I mean, who knows what the future holds? It just seems like right now we're facing like a major force of both the liberal Democrats, you know, treating us like shit and like this extremely powerful, like right wing monolith. It just seems like it's out gamed and outmatched any form of leftism, um, at the moment. Uh, and I think it's, I don't know if you even wanted to talk about Roe versus Wade, but the, I think we should talk about it in the next podcast cause we're reaching an hour and a half. Yeah. So let's, um, maybe I mean, we can wrap, so- wrap it up with just the rest of the headlines and then dive sure. into the Jordan Peterson shit and a row in the next podcast. Cause it's going to be a fun one. Yeah. I just wanted to mention it yeah, briefly though, because it is to me, if there's, if you're already holding on to hope that the democratic party is going to stand up as some kind of bulwark against the Republicans. Um, and like, if you were even one of those people who was like, Oh, yeah, look what happens when you vote third party. You know, Roe versus Wade gets overturned. Even if you are one of those liberals who blames everything on people who don't vote Democrat, um, I hope that now you can see that the Democratic Party does not give a fucking shit about you. What have they done since this legislation or since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade to take a stand against what's happening take a stand for women's rights to take a stand for any aspect of this it just seems like the silence and the energy the silence is deafening and the energy is so low so such a small you know percolation that it almost doesn't even matter it's like what this is the nightmare that everyone has been hoping would never happen and when it happens it's just like nothing and you know the what some of the most virulent anti uh virulent homophobia coming out of like the right that we've seen in a long time again also just not being addressed or responded to by any democrat in office and it's just like what are you guys doing have you it only it really does seem like to me that they've just given up to try to battle some of the you know in some of these important battles and and i do think it's true that it's probably just going to be a fundraising motivator i it's like it actually does kind of benefit them to just scaremonger about like, don't you want Roe versus Wade like put back in? Well, then vote for us, you know, and that's really all that we're going to get. Um, and it's it's just really it's really fucked up. Uh, and I don't really know. You know, I hope some other people are having that sort of wake up moment right now who were, you know, Susan Sarandon haters a few months ago. Um, but I don't know, you know. I don't well, know I even saw you... Deborah Messing say, like, why isn't he doing anything? And she's like a, your classic blame Susan Sarandon for Trump's election kind of gal. So yeah. I was I was hopeful to see that. But here, just to give you some insight on where Joe Biden is. By the way, side note, and I'm going to get into this in the next podcast. He is the one of the most anti-abortion Democrats. Yeah. So his legacy is astonishing. Yep. When it comes to this issue, he, in fact, just a few years ago, let's not forget why Obama picked him, because he was the fucking most centrist-ass, Republican-esque Democrat yep. <laughs> to appease the whites and the, the, the invisible moderate voter that doesn't fucking exist that they keep gunning for. He was on record just a few years ago being like, I, I do not believe that this is right or moral or anything. Like, I, I staunchly oppose this. Here's his response to quote-unquote activists, right? Or I'm sorry, 
Here's his response to quote-unquote liberals, just simply liberals who are Democrats who are being critical of the utter silence and lack of response to this huge monumental taking away of a constitutionally protected right for fucking 50 years. This is what Joe Biden said. This is his comms director. Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party, oh my Robbie. God. So, yeah, I mean, what do you expect from him? You've been out of step with the Democratic Party for a long time, but he's not even talking about us. He's talking about fucking Deborah Messing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's so, I mean, it's just... It's almost like they really did set up everything to make it seem like the Bernie bros were this scourge that needed to be like, you know, uh, excised from the Democratic Party. Um, and it's just so fascinating because it, like his positions reflect more of the polling <laughs> in the country. It's not even like the Democrats are responding to the polling anymore. That's what's it, it just seems like they're they're liter they're the ones who are out of step. I mean, that's, and that's been very obvious for a while that they're the ones who are out of step with like the mainstream pulse of Democratic voters. Um, and it's fascinating that they could just continue to push that lie um, and act like it's the activists, you know, who are the, who are the issue. When like 70% of the country agrees, it's just such a no-brainer and it has been for so long that there's this ascendant right-wing extremist sect of Catholics, essentially, who have been on the march very well organized for 50 years. And what's so funny about it, Robbie, is like the Democrats have been telling us the whole time. There's been a gun to our heads every time an election happens yeah. every two years. There's always yep. an election around the corner and it's always been, well, do you want your right to choice being, to be taken away? Because that's why you need to vote for us. It's like, well, wait a minute. So we've known that they've been organizing to do this, yeah. but you guys haven't done shit. And when the leak came out, the the most stunning thing to me is that this guy, whoever leaked the draft, obviously was done to try to like prompt the Democrats to respond <laughs> or like something. You know, I know we talked about it before that there might have been some ulterior motive, but like the fact that the Democrats didn't plan a response. Oh, yeah. They just let it hang <laughs> in the air, the leak for that long until it just finally got. Pat yeah, it's, it's actually kind of funny how fucked up it is. And then Kamala, during the Dana Bash interviews, she was just like, so, you know, all these people voted Democrat, millions and millions of people, and now they're looking at you and they're like, well, do something. And she's like, well, do what? Well, do what now? And it's like, what do you wow. mean, do what now? I, do you want me to tell you what you can do? Because I, I can. Wow. Like, how do you not fucking know? How has no one from the DOJ gotten together with the president and been like, let's figure out a strategy, even rhetorically? rhetorically or symbolically to push back on any of this is unbelievable. Also, what's really weird to me is like, why was that acceptable for anybody to be like, yeah, it's not the right thing for Obama to like put in a Supreme Court justice like right before he leaves <laughs> office. So we're going to do the nice thing and just pass it on to the next person. It's like, what in the... F that was so crazy to me that that was like acceptable. I mean, think about it. Like, oh, and Trump literally did the same thing. Everybody was like, no, Obama can't do that. That wouldn't be right. Like, he literally did that on his way out of office. <laughs> but it's our fault, Robbie. It's so fascinating that that was not railed against. That should have been, like, the moment all the... I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, people who are protesting now are, are not for real, but that should have been the moment where people were like, we're in really 
serious trouble. I like mean, a Democratic think- president just fucking passed the Supreme Court nomination over to like Trump. I mean, are you serious? You would and that think happened. That, that literally happened. You would think that Gore v. Bush would have been the moment, Robbie. But I think well, yeah. 9-11 <laughs> was like the like it was like totally like covered the wool over everyone's eyes and like reset the clock, dude. Oh yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, let's wrap up this episode. We have so much more to talk about. We're gonna go for another hour and a half doozy marathon blockbuster, baby. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed. This edition of Media Roots Radio was all over the place, but I liked it. Um, We're about to get into Roe v. Wade. We're about to get into Jordan Peterson, Scott Adams, advocating to murder your children. We're about to get into a lot more, guys. So tune in, turn on, and drop out. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, uh, remember to go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. If you're not already a subscriber to our podcast there, This gives you access to an entire premium bonus episode of our podcast per month um, that we do not release publicly. And that includes part four of our ongoing series on psychedelics. And we have uh, probably two more episodes coming out to finish that series this month. We're not, well, we're not sure if we're going to put out both this month or maybe just one. We'll see. Um, but as always, uh, we, we do put out four podcasts a month, and one of those is only available to our subscribers. So uh, thanks for all those who are already subscribed, and uh, yeah, take care, everybody.